Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 6. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. You brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord, rendering recompense to his enemies. So last week we began our spiritual checkup, right? And uh, we only made it to verse 2. <laughs> so today we're going to finish our spiritual checkup. And uh, this is a healthy thing for us to do. In fact, I think it's healthy for us to review the first two verses. Because I think they were very helpful for me to hear those words. And I needed to, be, to hear from God those words from verses 1 through 2. So I think it's helpful for all of us. We said last week there are many good physicians out there, right? That can do a whole lot of good for us. But there is only one great physician who is infinitely better than them all. He is not able, not only able to heal anything, but he is able to bring eternal healing. Think about that. He is able to heal in such a way that you will never need to be healed again. That is infinitely superior to all other physicians that have ever lived. But there is something that needs to happen before you can be healed. And this is very uncomfortable for us. But we need to be diagnosed. We need to, be, we need to have our spiritual health examined before we will ever go to God for healing. So if you're ever to be healed, you need to first have an examination. Or you'll never go to God for spiritual healing. This means that though that God, through his word, is not only capable of diagnosing the problem, perfectly capable of diagnosing the problem, but he's also perfectly able to heal. Isn't that incredible? God's word is sufficient for everything we need today. It is the only place where you could ever go to that will give you the right diagnosis of what's going on 
and of your problem. And it's the only place that will ever give you the answers that you need to hear. Both diagnosis and healing are found through God's word. It is all right here before us. What else would we do at this time of day (laughs) on Sunday mornings than study what God has to tell us? We mentioned that there was one really important difference between getting a physical checkup versus getting a, a, a spiritual checkup. Do you remember what that was? In a physical checkup, you examine how healthy you are by looking at your physical body, right? But when you're getting a, a spiritual checkup, you examine how healthy you are by looking at your worship. We examine our worship to know how healthy we are spiritually. Is God pleased with your worship? Are you worshiping God in the way he has prescribed for you to worship him? The rightness of your worship is directly related to your spiritual health. Remember Cain and Abel, just one example throughout the Bible. One was right and the other one wasn't based on their worship and how they approached God. And we know that Abel's was accepted because he worshiped God by faith. Right? According to Hebrews chapter 11. There are two possible results of a diagnosis from the great physician. If you are not healthy, then God's diagnosis is going to be a warning for you. A warning that you need to turn to the great physician before it's too late. You're in a terrible condition. Don't wait another moment. Turn to Christ and be saved. There is healing to be found in Christ. But if you are healthy, then God's diagnosis is that of comfort. He has great comfort for you today. Praise God. So we began our examination by checking to see if your vision of God aligns with the truth. And we might ask the question, why do we need to start here? Why do we need to start with examining our vision to make sure it aligns with the truth? And the answer is because the most essential aspect of your worship is that you see God accurately. That you see God with the eyes of faith for who he truly is. And we see that in verses 1 through 2. The first part of verse 2 as well. So a right view of God sees him as being in a superior position, reigning with absolute authority high above all things. Verse 1a, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And then we moved on and looked at how the question that comes from that is, if you have such a great view of God, how will it affect the way you serve him? Like building a house for him to dwell in. And the answer is, if you have a right view of God, you will not serve him as if you could add anything to him. As if God needed anything from you. As if you could offer him anything he doesn't already have. God needs absolutely nothing from us, does he? We are the needy ones. 
We can't offer God rest. He doesn't need rest. We can't offer God a place to house himself as if we could confine him to any location. God is not served that way. If we try to serve God that way, we dishonor him. And that's the question that was asked in the second half of verse 1. What is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? And you can see how that comes directly after God saying, I dwell in the high and holy place. And the earth is my footstool, right? Therefore, what house will he build for me? Now, God is not necessarily against temple building, we said. God is against temple building or service that is motivated with the wrong view of him. As if we could ever put God into our debt. To treat God that way is to mock him as if he was no different than an idol. It is idols who need, right? God then reinforced and built on his statement regarding his superiority to all creation by declaring his role as creator. He stands outside of his creation as the creator and therefore needs absolutely nothing. Verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. If God made everything, then there is nothing you could give to him that he doesn't already own. (laughs) He owns everything. Even building a house for him are using his materials. Thank you, Lord, that we can serve you, right? Because all the things we have and even the ability to serve and even the desire to serve, it comes from God. All the praise goes to God. So whenever we approach God, we come to God not as giving him anything, but as needy people. That's what worship is. Hands empty, ready to receive from God. We need him. So we said in conclusion, yes, go to church. Yes, sing. Yes, read your Bible. Yes, give in the offering and give the gospel. But do our outward actions of worship that God calls us to always in light of the truth of who God is. That we are the needy ones, not God. And that is the only way that our worship is going to be acceptable to him. Then we examined what a healthy worshiper looks like in the second half of verse 2. God explains what a healthy worshiper looks like in this way. He explains the one he is pleased with, the one that he accepts, the one that he looks at in this way. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, a right worshiper is humble before God. And humility can only be defined in relationship to God. That's the only way you can define what true humility is. A humble person sees themselves in light of who God is accurately. And we see God accurately in, verse, in light of verse 1, the first part there, right? That he is high and exalted, right? He is superior to all things. And we see our small, true position in light of who God is as exalted. And therefore, humility takes the right position before God and his lordship. It submits to God and his lordship and it says, I need you. That's what humility is. If you're not thinking that way, if you're not oriented that way, then you are not humble no matter what you look like and no matter how you appear like. A right worshiper is contrite in spirit, we said. And to be contrite means to recognize your spiritual inability, depravity, and sickness. I recognize that I'm a rebel before a holy God. And I have nothing but judgment and destruction that I deserve. 
And to be contrite means not only to know that, but also to repent and confess my sins before God. It means take full responsibility of my sin rather than justifying myself or ignoring it. And finally, a right worshiper trembles at God's word. If you understand and believe that the one speaking to you through the word of God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, if you understand that the one speaking to us of the word of God is the one who's going to bring judgment, if you understand that the one who's speaking to us is the one who is going to save, he alone judges, he alone saves, he's the only one who creates, then you will tremble before his word. No doubt about it. True faith that hears God's word as if coming from the the true God always trembles before his word. So how do you examine whether or not you tremble at his word? Well, do you take the preaching of God's word seriously? Do you make the word of God a priority in your life? Do you pursue obedience and practice repentance when you fail? We all fail, right? But God's children repent. (laughs) Do you sit in judgment over it, or does it sit in judgment over you? And we said, I, I just want to read this. Um, we said that what this looks like is first, uh, as the church of Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Let's remind ourselves of these words. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. That's what it means to tremble at the word of God. So that was all review. Now we're going to examine what an, healthy, what an unhealthy worshiper looks like. And we need to be reminded that everybody is a worshiper. Regardless of what you claim, regardless of what anybody claims, everybody is a worshiper. The question is whether you worship God rightly or wrongly. The question is whether you worship God the way he has prescribed or the way he has not prescribed. Some are healthy and some are unhealthy. So in contrast to the healthy worshiper of verse 2, God describes what a healthy worshiper looks like in verses 3 through 4. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them. And bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose in which I did not delight. So let's first look at how they're described here. How are the worshipers described in these verses? Well, first of all, they're doing outwardly exactly what God calls them to do, aren't they? Notice how they're described here. They were slaughtering oxen as God prescribed. Well, that's good. They were sacrificing lambs as God prescribed. They were making grain offerings as God prescribed. They were making memorial offerings of frankincense as God prescribed for them to do. All these things God prescribed. So, so far, so good, right? But now look at the way God views what they were doing. God views their slaughtering of an ox as if they were killing a man. God views their sacrificing of sheep as if they were breaking a dog's neck. God views their presenting of grain offerings as if they were offering pig's blood. 
God views making memorial offerings of frankincense as if they were blessing an idol. What is God saying about their worship? God is saying he abhors their worship. God is saying using language that is the most unimaginably horrific language God could use to describe what they are doing. And this is supposed to be shocking, isn't it? What does this mean, therefore, about worship? Well, this means you can do all the outward right things that God tells you to do and not be pleasing to God at all. You can do outwardly all the right acts of worship and God can look at what you're doing as being abhorrent in his sight. And so before we move on, we need to ask ourselves, what might this have looked like for Isaiah? Because we can easily move on without trying to understand the gravity of the words that Isaiah was saying. Imagine God's people going out of their way to offer what God prescribed for them to offer in worship. Imagine even the excitement from the worshipers who are gathered together. You know, when you get people gathered together, there's just this excitement that often just inhabits the air. Imagine the excitement that likely would have been there. You could feel it. Then, here comes party pooper Isaiah. He comes and say, everything you are doing is an abomination to God. He hates it. He's going to spew it out of his mouth. He hates what you're doing. He says it's worse than going to a feel-good Mary Kay convention. It's the foulest idolatry that you could imagine. Imagine someone coming here into our place of worship today and saying that your efforts of worship, your singing, your raising hands, giving is an abomination to God. God hates it as if you were worshiping idols. This is exactly what's going on here from Isaiah. Would this offend you? Do you think you would embrace the message? Would you tremble before God's word? Or would you get angry and mad? Well, it should be sobering for you to think that it's even possible to do all the outward forms of worship as prescribed by God and still be abhorrent in God's sight. This means you should never place your confidence in the rightness of your worship based solely on whether or not you're doing the outward right forms that God has prescribed. Do not base security of your salvation on whether or not you go to church, whether you read your Bible, whether you raised your hands and came forward and professed some words out of your mouth. That is never the basis for which we rest our assurance on. Everything really boils down to one question. Who determines what worship is acceptable and what worship is not acceptable? And we know the answer to that question in our heads. But I wonder if we know it in our hearts. God is the only one who determines what is acceptable 
and what is not acceptable. It's his opinion alone that matters. So we need to ask, what is wrong with their worship? What is it that makes it so despicable to God? Why does God respond so strongly? And that's exactly what we see in the second half of verse 3 and the second half of verse 4. Let me read those portions of Scripture. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. They did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So what does God say is wrong with their worship? I mean, aren't you interested? Don't you really want to know what's wrong? Well, it says here they chose their own ways. They went in a direction that's contrary to God's way. And that's not just a side tour. That's not just like a a little um, excursion. The path of their life was contrary to God's path. That's what that means. Their soul also delighted in that which is an abomination, which is evil to God. And notice the word soul there. The soul is the very, very innermost being that is within them. The core of their being. What they really loved was contrary to what God loved. So we might ask, just stop for a second, what gives God the right to make such strong corrections to their worship? And let us remind ourselves that God is the standard of what is right and wrong. He is the measuring line between right and wrong. He is the judge and the rewarder. We are often sadly wishy-washy, aren't we, when it comes to sin. Well, God helps us in places like this to define what sin is and what sin is not in a very concrete way. You see, God says they chose their own path that is contrary to my path. That is sin. They delighted in what I do not delight in. That is sin. And so that's really concrete, isn't it? It's not difficult to understand. We just like to make it difficult to understand. It's really easy to identify by just knowing what God's path is and what God delights in. The opposite is sin. You and I, therefore, can identify what an unhealthy heart looks like. It's when the very center of our being does not delight in what God delights in. When we have no appetite for what God loves and delights in. It's when we choose to give ourselves over to a lifestyle of evil in God's sight. An unhealthy heart does not delight in God or his ways. An unhealthy heart does not take God's path in his ways. So what are we to make of the things that they were doing that were good? Right? I mean, what are we to make of the fact that they were doing some good things? What made the good bad is that they had no interest in doing the right things. And they were practicing what was evil at the same time, which they actually loved. Therefore, even the good they were doing was really bad in God's sight. Going to church on Sundays and then loving and living like the devil the rest of the week doesn't honor God. In such a case, doing the right thing only serves to cover up for what we really love. This means that even if your actions are right in some ways, they are not right in God's eyes if they are motivated by a heart that does not love God in his ways. Worship that does not come from a humble and contrite spirit that trembles at God's word 
is an abomination to God, no matter what it looks like otherwise. People with unclean hearts will make unclean offerings, no matter how rigorously they keep the letter of the law, no matter how passionate and sincere they might appear to be. God doesn't just look at our outward action, but the heart that compels the action. Such unhealthy heart not only produces bad things, but also corrupts the good things that we do. Even good things become bad things when they are motivated by a wicked and evil heart. What God is describing here is what we call the hypocrite, right? A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something they're not. Someone who plays a role that is really not true of who they are. In other words, they are not genuine believers we're looking at here. They are pretenders. They might be sincere, they might be religious, but they are fake. Now, some people go around saying everybody's a hypocrite, right? And, and there's some truth to that. There's a little bit of truth to that. Everyone, in a sense, does hypocritical things every now and then, right? But not everyone is a hypocrite. The difference is between having blemishes versus being a dead corpse, right? Every believer still has the old nature, <laughs> They still struggle and battle against the old nature. They still have pimples, right? But they're no longer dead in their sins. They're not pretending to be something they're not. Everyone has blemishes, but not everyone is a hypocrite. And this distinction is very helpful for us understanding passages of Scripture that make strong statements regarding those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven, such as 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. These verses can be very confusing if we don't understand this. This is not saying everyone who sins in these ways is not going to be saved. It's saying everyone that this is their heart, that this is the pattern of their lives, that this is their, their, their love of their soul will not be saved. And if you read 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, you will read um, one thing after another that characterizes everybody in some way or form. But for believers... That is no longer our heart and it's no longer a passion because we have new hearts and new desires that are pursuing God even though we do fail at times. You might ask, well, how can anyone change what they love? This is impossible. How can I love what I don't love? <laughs> well, that is the very point, isn't it? God is the only one who can change us. God is the great physician. And the Bible describes how your desires can be changed in a number of ways. Notice these are basically saying the same thing, just different ways. You must become a new creation. You must be born again. You must be made alive by God. And these are similar ways of saying the same thing. You must be given a new heart. You need a new heart. That's what you need. If you have a new heart, your actions will in some ways, shapes, and forms reflect the new reality. You'll begin to delight in what God delights and choose what God chooses. In other words, you'll be, you, you will by faith become a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. So we, we we're going to conclude our examination today with a warning for those who are unhealthy and a word of comfort for those who are healthy. First, there's a word of comfort of salvation for those who are healthy. In verse 5. Now, if you notice, it's almost as if God says, Hear my words 
all those who listen to me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at my word. (laughs) I have a word of comfort for those who listen to me. And that's what the words of comfort in Scripture are for. The words of comfort in Scripture are only for those who tremble at God's word. And they are all for those who tremble at God's word. So how does God comfort those who worship him the right way? God comforts those who are word tremblers by acknowledging that he is aware of those who don't tremble at his word. In other words, hypocrites who persecute them in God's name. The the, the non-tremblers are angry and mad at you who tremble. And so they will kick you out of their presence and they will poke fun of you and make fun of you and try to shame you and say, now we will see your joy. Now we will see your joy for sure after they kick you out of their presence. They will say, you are not welcomed with us when we worship God. And they'll cast you out. How is this comforting? Well, it's comforting because it says God knows what you're going through. How comforting is it when you're being picked on by someone as a kid and someone tells your dad you're being picked on? Isn't that comforting? Well, God says, I know what you're going through. I know the persecution that is just part of the natural world that we are in. Jesus said the same thing in John 16, verse 2, that they'll persecute you in his name, saying that they're doing God a favor by persecuting you. So why might those who don't tremble treat those who do this way? Why might they treat you this way? And I think the answer is because your presence puts them to shame. They can see the genuineness of your worship. They can see that you genuinely love God and you expose the reality that they do not love God just by your presence. Genuine devotion to God exposes and put to shame shallow, surfacy, fake devotion. In other words, by just living and loving God, you put them to shame. So they hate and shame you in any way they can and how much better of a way than kick you out and claim they are worshiping God. One way they can justify themselves for doing this is by claiming that your devotion to God is unbalanced, whereas they are balanced in their worship. They claim that you are fanatical, unbalanced, crazy lunatic, right? You therefore should be more moderate in your devotion like they are, right? The ultimate comfort God gives for tremblers is that he will reverse the shame. Isn't this great to hear? God says that those who do not tremble will tremble before God when he brings judgment upon them. And you will be vindicated. What an incredible thought. A reversal of fortunes. This means we must not determine the rightness of our worship based on public opinion of what is acceptable, but rather based on the truth of God's word. What do we owe God? (laughs) We don't worship God based on what appears to be weird or fanatical to the world. Of course it's going to look fanatical. Of course it's going to look weird. If not, then you're doing something wrong. Who cares if your husband or wife thinks you're fanatical for Christ's sake? Or your family thinks you're fanatical for Christ's sake? Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, so will I be ashamed of you. 
For we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let the world call us fanatical. That's okay. This should remind us, no matter how things appear, God is committed to the eternal comfort of his people. That should bring you great joy today. Finally, there's a terrifying word of warning for those who are not healthy. Notice sound, the sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. <laughs> Notice the building. This is like with the words voice and sound on, on each other to build up the tempo and to increase the emotion and the strength of what is being said here. The prophet hears an uproar from the city. He hears this uproar. And then he notices it's coming from the temple. And then he realizes it is God speaking in judgment. Kind of like the worst nightmare you could ever imagine. He is hearing the word of God coming in judgment. Now how is God going to bring judgment? Isn't it amazing? The judgment is coming from the word of God. The sword that comes out of the mouth of, of Jesus is the very word that will bring judgment. God needs nothing more than his word to bring judgment on his enemies. And this is the very word that they refuse to tremble at. That will bring judgment on their lives. They will see the glory of God manifested on themselves. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul encourages you to examine yourself. And that's what we're doing now. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? And the only place to examine ourselves accurately is the word of God. There is too much at stake not to look at ourselves in light of the word of God. What is your diagnosis like? Well, you're a sinner by birth and by choice. You're at odds with the living God. You have picked a fight with God. The diagnosis means you have a twofold problem that needs to be fixed. You need a new heart that loves what God loves, and you need your guilt removed. And this is very hard for those who are religious. This is the hardest thing for us to hear because we take our pride in the fact that we worship God rightly. So you can imagine there's nowhere harder for these words to be taken seriously than a church setting. Because it is churchgoers who rebel against the thought that maybe they are not worshiping God rightly. Just as it would have been hard for the Jews to hear these words from Isaiah the prophet. It is hard for us to think we might not be who we think we are. But listen, God has a great prescription for you. Don't pass it up. Don't ignore the physician. He can miraculously heal you. God's prescription is this. God's prescription is not a formula. God's prescription is God himself. God is the only way to be saved from God's wrath. God alone can give you a new heart that looks to him and loves him. God alone can give you a heart that looks to him by faith as the basis for your salvation, as the basis for your righteousness. You need his righteousness. And by Christ alone, you can have his righteousness on your account. Peter said this, by his wounds you have been healed. 
1 Peter 2, verse 24. And I'll read again, Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Repent and believe the good news. And God says, you will be saved. God promises, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. God loves to work miracles. Look to him. One of my children asked me recently if Mr. Rogers would be saved. Well, what do you say in response to that? It's not hard, actually, to know what to say in response to that. My response was, what does God's word say? The answer has nothing to do with how nice Mr. Rogers was, nor that he was an ordained minister. That doesn't help you as far as salvation goes. Nor what I think about Mr. Rogers, nor what you think of Mr. Rogers. The answer has everything to do with whether or not he came to God his way. God is not a respecter of persons. This means if you don't come to God his way, you will not be saved. But if you come to God his way, you will be saved. God always, always fulfills his word. If you come to God his way, you will not be cast out. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. If you worship God his way, if you have come to him the way he has prescribed, if you have a regenerated heart that has begun to love God for who he is, then be comforted today. All the comfort in the world belongs to you. And why is that? Because God looks at you. (laughs) You are in God's favor. God himself is for you. He gave you his son. He died for you on the cross. If God is for you, then who can be against you? And I say that to mean don't give up. Keep looking to Christ. He is your strong foundation. He is your security. He is your great reward. You have everything you need in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Christ. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Lord, we have tried to expound on the goodness of our physician, of, our, of, of you <laughs> as our Savior. And Lord, we have so, we, we fail so miserably to even begin to express the greatness of our Savior. But Lord, you are infinitely great. You are magnificent. And so I pray that your Spirit would work powerfully to magnify your Son before our eyes. God, we thank you for your word that is sufficient for us today. God, we need your help. And Lord, if there is anyone in here who does not know you as their Savior, if there is anyone out here, Lord, who is at this moment standing under the the wrath of God, 
I pray that they would come to you your way. I pray that you would give birth to worshipers today. And that you would be, and that the, the chorus of praise would grow even louder. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.